you have your copy of God's Word with you this morning, I ask you to open it up to 1 Samuel chapter 28. 1 Samuel chapter 28. We are coming to the end of our unexpected series. There is one more message in our unexpected series of messages next week. Um, so uh, this morning, the uh, penultimate, the, the second to last message here, 1 Samuel chapter 28. As you're turning there, let me just uh, open by saying this. I'm often surprised when I am driving down the road looking at various businesses, retail establishments, that in the midst of driving down the road in the 21st century in the United States of America, in the midst of restaurants and stores on any given Main Street, even here in Burlington, there may be a sign that says, Palm Reading tarot cards, or a sign for a psychic. And it always seems just a little bit anachronistic to me, a little bit out of place and out of time to be driving by a McDonald's and a Starbucks and then see a sign for a palm reading. I think to myself, who in the 21st century is going to a palm reader? With the internet and TV, isn't it obvious that they're charlatans and that they're just there to prey on the weak and the vulnerable? Perhaps I notice it more this time of year because for some reason it seems like every seaside New England town I visit has at least one. And wherever you go in the summer, I don't know if you've noticed this, whether it's Rockport or Portsmouth or Newburyport or wherever your favorite seaside New England town is you might like to visit, I just challenge you, look a little closer. You're going to find, you're going to find the t-shirt shop. You're going to find the taffy shop, the toy store, the bookstore, the coffee shop. And then usually somewhere in the midst of that, you'll see one of these signs for a palm reader tarot cards, a psychic. I don't know if there's some magnetism in the water that they're drawn to or more likely that maybe summer tourists are a little easier to separate from their money than other people. But for some reason, it seems like every one of these little seaside towns has one of these shops set up there. And I look at it, and it just seems strange in 21st century America. The strange look of the shops, the relics, the Strange curtains and colors seems out of place. Of course, I'm not so naive to realize that there are many in 21st century America that will walk down those same streets, see an old church, and be shocked to find that inside that building meets a group of people who believe that Jesus is Lord and that the Bible is true and live their life as their, as it with their with it as their rule of faith and conduct. I, I'm not so naive to think that there aren't people that, that think that would be strange in 21st century America. There's something within us as people that no matter the time and no matter the place, things might change, shops might change, streets might change, transportation changes, how you pay for things might change through the years. Now you can swipe your smartphone in front of something to pay instead of bartering with chickens or animals. But people don't change. 
throughout the years. People, all these other things might change, but then people don't necessarily change. Inside of humanity, men and women, throughout the years, though all these things change, there's something within us that longs for something beyond us. There's something within us spiritually that longs for something outside of us. And no matter how material or materialistic our world may become, there's still something with inside people that wants something outside of themselves, and they want to know what goes on on the other side of this thing we call death. I would agree with many of the early Christian theologians that say that God has created within humanity a God-shaped vacuum. There's this space within us that cannot be filled by any other means but by God, though people will still try and fill it with all other means. And I think a longing for a psychic or a tarot card or a palm reading is this desire to know something about the other side of this door of death. To know something about maybe the future that we could not or would not know about. In the passage we're going to look at this morning, we find a man who at one point had known the Lord. The Lord spoke to He had a deeply spiritual encounter with God at one point in his life. And yet in the passage we find him in this morning, we find him in a very strange place. It would be like a man who once walked close with God walking into one of these shops in one of these seaside towns looking for direction. We have to ask when we find him in this ungodly place, how did he get there? What would cause someone who knew God and wants to hear God's voice to seek that voice in such a strange and ungodly place? 1 Samuel chapter 28, your Bible might have it uh, titled uh, in in that chapter as Saul and the Witch of Endor. A strange title, a strange passage, perhaps one of the more strange passages in all of 1 Samuel, perhaps in all of the Old Testament, maybe of all the Bible, as this one great king commissioned and anointed to lead God's people finds himself in front of the witch of Endor. 1 Samuel chapter 28, beginning in verse 3, the story goes through verse 20. Here's what it says. Now Samuel was dead. That was God's prophet. Now Samuel was dead, and all Israel had mourned for him and buried him in his own town of Ramah. Saul had expelled the mediums and spiritists from the land. The Philistines assembled and came and set up camp at Shunem, while Saul gathered all the Israelites and set up camp at Gilboa. When Saul saw the Philistine army, he was afraid. Terror filled his heart. He inquired of the Lord, but the Lord did not answer him by dreams or Urim or prophets. Saul then said to his attendants, Find me a woman who is a medium so I may go inquire of her. There is one in Endor, they said. So Saul disguised himself, putting on other clothes, And at night, he and two men went to the woman. Consult a spirit for me, he said, and bring up for me the one I name. But the woman said to him, 
Surely you know what Saul has done. He has cut off the mediums and spiritists from the land. Why have you set a trap for my life to bring about my death? Saul swore to her by the Lord, As surely as the Lord lives, you will not be punished for this. Then the woman asked, Whom shall I bring up for you? Bring up Samuel, he said. When the woman saw Samuel, she cried out at the top of her voice and said to Saul, Why have you deceived me? You are Saul. The king said to her, Don't be afraid. What do you see? The woman said, I see a spirit coming up out of the ground. What does he look like? He asked. An old man wearing a robe is coming up, she said. Then Saul knew it was Samuel, and he bowed down and prostrated himself with his face to the ground. Samuel said to Saul, Why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? I am in great distress, Saul said. The Philistines are fighting against me, and God has turned away from me. He no longer answers me either by prophets or by dreams, so I have called on you to tell me what to do. Samuel said, Why do you consult me now that the Lord has turned away from you and become your enemy? The Lord has done what he predicted through me. The Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hands and given it to one of your neighbors, to David. Because you did not obey the Lord or carry out his fierce wrath against the Amalekites, the Lord has done this to you today. The Lord will hand, you, hand over both Israel and you to the Philistines, and tomorrow you and your sons will be with me. The Lord will also hand over the army of Israel to the Philistines. Immediately, Saul fell full length on the ground, filled with fear because of Samuel's words. His strength was gone, for he had eaten nothing all day and all night. This is certainly one of the more odd accounts that we come across in 1 Samuel, if not in all the Bible. You may have heard this before. You may be hearing it for the first time and think that is a strange occurrence to happen in God's Word. I mentioned last week that 1 Samuel, especially this part, is a little bit like a modern film that shifts from one scene to the other. Last week we saw the scene of David's life right now concurrently of what he's doing with what, at the same time that we read about what's happening to Saul right here. David finding himself in a very difficult place, needing God's guidance, chose to strengthen himself in the Lord. That's what we found last week. That he chose to go to the Lord for guidance. He found his strength and his refuge in God's presence. Saul clearly goes another route. Before we get into why Saul makes such a choice and what could cause otherwise people who want to hear God's voice, otherwise godly people seek counsel in ungodly places, let me just make a couple comments about the situation itself, which is unusual, as I said. The Bible just gives us this story as a matter of fact. There is no commentary on mediums, on necromancy, on consulting the dead. We certainly would appreciate a little more information on what is going on here. It seems there are at least three possibilities of what's going on here with the appearing of Samuel. One possibility, 
is that God allowed the real but really dead Samuel to appear to Saul. The support for this possibility is certainly the surprise of the medium when, Saul, when Samuel appears. She clearly did not expect this, if anything, to actually happen. And yet Samuel appears. Also, she realizes Saul's identity when she sees the prophet Samuel. Perhaps when he said, call up Samuel for me, she thought it was cousin Sam or uncle Sam. But when the prophet Samuel shows up, she knows the identity of the man before him, before her, is King Saul. The challenge to this interpretation is God has said he was done talking to Saul. And he could have revealed the same information through other means Saul was looking for. He could have revealed it in a dream or some other way. Why reveal it with Saul going to a medium? Second possibility or another possibility is that the woman was active in some evil art, uh, in some evil arts and that the, and, and in contact with the demonic and a demon or an evil spirit took on the form of Samuel in that place. In support of this view, it would be consistent with the rest of scripture where really nowhere else do we see someone who has died coming back and speaking to the living. The one possible exception may be Moses and Elijah on the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus, but that is a completely uh, different account. And also Moses and Elijah appear in a glorified uh, state much different than we see Samuel in this case. This possibility would also be supported by the fact that God was done talking to Saul, so maybe it wasn't God. But the challenge to this view is... If the aberration is demonic and of Satan, he certainly speaks a word that is in accordance with what God has already said. And he correctly predicts Saul's future, which would be somewhat unusual for a demon to have that kind of information because Saul does in fact die that next day with his sons and the army is defeated. Still a third possibility is that she was a fake, a charlatan, and the whole thing was a ruse. Support for this possibility is that only the woman seems to see Samuel and Saul doesn't. Isn't this what we often see in this kind of ruse that only the person that's uh, running the seance or whatever, at least as I understand them, I have not been to one, uh, only, let me put that uh, assurance out there, Uh, but uh, if if you're running the scam, right, only only the person in there can see what's going on, and wouldn't that be in, in line with the scam that she says, I see someone? And only she sees them, and Saul doesn't, uh, in fact, see him. Also, the words that Samuel spoke are nothing new and would likely have been fairly common knowledge to people, the fact that Saul had been condemned by God and the kingdom had been given to David. The challenge, however, is that Saul seems to speak directly to Samuel, and the woman seems to have perhaps left the room during that conversation. And, of course, there's the problem again that this would mean this woman, as a charlatan, as a fake, correctly predicted the future for Saul and what would happen the very next day, which usually seems a little more accurate than a ruse would be able to pull off. In the end, we don't have a clear explanation for what exactly went on in that room. I think the most plausible is to take it at face value that God, for some reason, allowed something highly unusual 
And this is for Samuel who had died to appear to Saul in the land of the living and to speak his word to him again. I don't know why the Lord would allow that or why the Lord would allow that to happen or participate in such circumstances, but the text just says that it happens. The text does not mention anything about a demon or the woman being a fake. It just says this is what happened. While we don't know for sure what happened in that room that night, we do know some things very clearly about such encounters. First, there is a spiritual and unseen world that is very real and exists. One of the greatest shams of the devil is to get you and I to believe that all that is real is what we see and only what we see is real. The devil's quite happy, I think, with convincing anybody that that's the case. But the Bible talks clearly and often about principalities and powers that exist that we cannot see. There's talk about battles going on in the spiritual realm that have an effect in the physical world that we live in. Both the Old Testament and the New Testament have scriptures that attest to this. One of the more famous is Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood. That's this world, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly realms. Paul very clearly, and God in his word, is saying there is a spiritual realm that exists, powers, principalities. You can't see them, but they're real, and they're there. We also know that while they are real, God has clearly, unmistakably said that this world of trying to communicate with the dead is not the place for his followers. This is not of God to do this thing. Leviticus chapter 19 says, Do not turn to mediums or seek out spiritists, for you will be defiled by them. I am the Lord your God. So even though this real world exists, God warns us very clearly not to partake of it. Another scripture in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, says, No, but the sacrifices of pagans are offered to demons, not to God. And I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and drink the cup of demons too. You cannot have a part in both the Lord's table and the table of demons. So there'd be some that might say, Oh, it's just for fun. Oh, it doesn't mean anything. Oh, it's, it's not real. And Paul in that passage seems to say, in some sense, you're right. They're not real. These things aren't real. They're not real gods. But what's behind them is participation in a spiritual realm and participation with demons that you need to stay away from. So even someone who's acting like a fake, even someone who's acting like a charlatan may unknowingly and unwittingly be in participation with a spiritual realm that believers are called to stay away from. And so very clearly this world exists and very clearly as believers and followers of God we are told to stay away from it. The time and the place really doesn't matter. There seems to have been and maybe will always be a fascination with being able to contact and get guidance from people who have passed out of this world. Television shows these days that focus on vampires, the undead, all have a focus on this other world. Is it real or just for fun or just a game? I think the devil, spirits, demons would want us to think so. Some may be thinking that's all it is, but the Bible is clear that there's more to it than that. For some, it may be a sham, a con, a way to separate people from their money. 
but there's a very real unseen world out there. We can't control it, and it's not our place to open ourselves up to that world. So in the strangeness of that encounter, I think we can say those things for sure. But Saul was looking, here's what's interesting to me about this passage as we look at it, how it might apply to us more specifically today. Saul was looking for godly counsel. He went to this ungodly woman asking her to bring up who? Samuel the prophet. He is asking to speak to God's prophet. He is looking and wanting God. He's not going to the Baals or the Asherahs or all the other false gods of the day. He is looking for godly counsel from the prophet Samuel who's died, but he's going to an ungodly place to try and receive it. He was not seeking the the wisdom of these others. He was seeking it from God. So what would cause a person who is looking for godly wisdom to look for it in such an ungodly place and in such an ungodly way. How is it that someone who's looking for godly counsel can find themselves looking for it in an ungodly place and in an ungodly way? Why would a person who in many areas of life follows God go to an ungodly place looking for direction? What could cause a person to seek this direction? in an ungodly place. According to Saul and what happened to him, I think there are two reasons that can combine, that combined for this result in his life and that if we're not careful, can also combine to lead even believers today to try and seek godly wisdom in ungodly places. The two things are this. One is an unhealthy anxiety and fear about the future. The second is life lived that has cut you off from hearing God's voice. One is an unhealthy anxiety and fear about the future. Second is a life lived that has cut you off from hearing the very voice of God. Biblically speaking, it's unnecessary to qualify anxiety as unhealthy anxiety. Because all anxiety, according to the Bible, would be an unhealthy thing that, that God would have us, want us to overcome. Philippians 4, 6 tells us clearly to be anxious about nothing. But in everything, by prayer and petition, bring your requests to God. And the peace of God that passes all understanding will be given to you. But Saul was extremely anxious And fearful, it said terror reigned in his heart. But when we bring our concerns and our requests to God and trust him, we have nothing to be anxious about. The Bible says that God didn't give us a spirit of fear, but gives us one of love that casts out fear. The Philistines were gathering for war. Saul didn't know what to do. In the past, Samuel was there to tell him. Or the priests. Well, Samuel was dead and Saul killed all the priests. There's no one left. God had said, I'm done, Saul. You have made your decision. I have taken, God essentially took his spirit from him. We don't know what's going to happen in the future, and Saul didn't either, and so he got anxious about it. The same thing can happen to us. Events of this past week can cause us to be fearful and anxious about the future. Five Marines gunned down while at their place of work. Not a combat situation. Just at work. Tennessee. United States of America. 
And you hear a story like that, your heart is moved, grieved, moved to prayer. And yet, it can also be an occasion that might bring fear into your life and into your heart, anxiety. What's going on? Maybe, maybe a sense of safety is even taken away and there's fear and anxiety that can creep in. Other events of this way, a, a deal with Iran and a lot of talk about whether they will or will not be able to obtain a nuclear weapon and what that will mean for the rest of the world. Can you watching this and you look at it, you can say, what's going on in the world? What does this mean for us? And at some times, at some point, a point of fear and anxiety might come into your life. Even in other places, there are some Christians I know talking about and watching the news and reading books and looking at this September and all the events, some, uh, some that might come together this September, and they're looking at what's going to happen this September because all these biblical events seem to be happening. Maybe it's the end of the world. Maybe Jesus is going to come. And, and we can talk about that, and we can, we can look at what the Bible has to say, but what we can't do is allow it to create a fear and anxiety within us. Because God has given us clear instructions of what we're to be doing until he comes. We as Christians are called to rest in his presence and to trust him. Let's not forget that we serve the one who told us to be anxious about nothing. Our Lord said that if he takes care of the birds and the flowers, he will certainly take care of us. So we need not fear and we certainly need not go to ungodly places to find godly direction. But it can happen that a fear about the future causes you to go someplace for godly counsel, but you end up in an ungodly place looking for it because you have a fear about the future or anxiety about the future. Find your rest in, your pres- in, your, in, in the Lord. And if that's you, you know, I, I encourage you to just press in, get on your face before God, give that anxiety to Him, give that fear to Him, and ask Him to replace it with love and faith in Him. That perfect love, the Scriptures say, cast out all fear when we rest in His love, His unconditional, unending love. It casts out fear in our lives. The second thing that led Saul to the witch of Endor was that he had cut himself off from hearing the voice of God in his life. Through a series of choices Saul made that were clearly against the will of God, God had taken the kingdom from Saul and was preparing to give it to another. Now, could Saul repent and turn to God? Of course he could have. Would God have heard him and forgiven him if his repentance was genuine? I believe he would have, but that does not mean that God would have still allowed him to be king. That does not mean that God would have left the kingdom to him, given him a legacy, and not given it to David, and that was not something Saul was willing to give up. In all his words, Saul never truly repented and turned to the Lord. Saul was very interested in being king, not very interested in being a servant of the Lord. He cut himself off from hearing God's voice. What about us? Are there things we could do that would cut us off from hearing God's voice? According to the Bible, there certainly are choices we make that cut us off from the Lord and the voice of the Lord speaking into our lives. Let me give you six quick things this morning, and I am going to give them to you quickly, only saying a couple sentences about each. So if you're writing them down, write quickly or go back and listen to the podcast again to get them. Six quick things that can cut you off from hearing the voice of God in your life. 
They're important for you and I think I to evaluate in our lives. If you're at a place where you're saying, I'm not hearing God's voice or I'm praying and God's not hearing me, perhaps there's one of these things that's going on in your life that is keeping you from being heard by God or keeping God from speaking to you. Quickly, six things. One is this. The first one is keeping a sin in our life that we do not confess and repent of Keeping a sin in your life or in your heart that you do not confess or repent of. Psalms chapter 66 verse 18 says, If I had cherished sin in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. We go to God and we want to hear his voice. And yet there is something in our heart that we are making room for that we refuse to get rid of. There is something in our heart and in our life that, 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 yes, we say God is the Lord of our life, and yet we make this place for this thing in our heart that we know isn't pleasing to God, that we know God would have us turn away from. He has made it clear to us, and we have yet chosen to make space for it in our minds, our heart, and our lives, and it can hinder God hearing our voice. Why? Because we've said, God, I hear your voice in this area in my life, but I'm not going to listen to it. I'm going to keep this sin in my life. And that hinders us from hearing God's voice in other areas of our lives. We can't say to God, God, I don't want to hear you or listen to you in this area of my life, but I want to hear you over here in this part. It doesn't work that way. And so we have sin that we leave space for, and it keeps us from hearing God's voice. Secondly is this, too. Asking with wrong and specifically with selfish motives. James chapter 4 verse 3 tells us when you ask, you do not receive because you ask with the wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. Many times we don't get what we ask for. We're talking to God and we're saying, God, why aren't you answering? Because we're not motivated by glorifying God and becoming more like Him. But we are more motivated by our own personal pleasure in our own glory. Are we asking for God or for us? Many times God knows if I answer that prayer for you, it's going to be more harmful than helpful to you because you can't handle what you're asking for. But maybe there's a time we are asking with the wrong motives. We're asking for selfish desires and so God doesn't hear our prayers. Third, Wavering in our belief or approaching God in doubt and not in faith. Hebrews chapter 11 verse 6 says, And without faith it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must trust that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. You have to come in faith and trust. Dr. David Jeremiah, pastor of a church out in California, says this. He reminds us uh, on this verse. He says, This does not mean as some suggest, that just because we come to God convinced that he will grant our request, he is somehow obligated to do so. Praying without doubt means praying in the secure belief and understanding of God's character, nature, and motives. It means fully trusting in God and in his plan, coming without doubt that he is in control and that he is at work. Wavering belief can hinder our prayers. Fourth, when we hold back forgiveness of others, it can keep us from hearing the voice of God. Matthew chapter 18, again, David Jeremiah points to this uh, parable of Jesus, the unforgiving servant. In this parable, 
servants who have been forgiven much refused to extend that forgiveness to others. Jesus, at the end of that, says, this is how my heavenly Father will treat you if you, unless, uh, unless you forgive your brother from your heart. So we can be put out, separated from God because we forgive, refuse to extend forgiveness to others that God has extended to us. Five, discord at home can keep the Lord from hearing our prayers. Improper treatment of your spouse and husbands specifically, we are specifically called out on this one in this passage that Paul talks about. We are specifically called out on this one. Uh, for, sorry, not Paul, Peter. First Peter 3, 7 says this. Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. It's said specifically to husbands, but I think it, I think it uh, applies to all, to both spouses and to the home in general, uh, that when there's discord at home, it can hinder our prayers. But Peter's speaking specifically to husbands because often this is a problem for husbands. And specifically in the day that Peter was writing to, it was definitely a problem for husbands who would abuse their role as leader in the home and abuse their role as leader in their marriage. And Peter says, if you do that, God's not going to hear your prayers. And he talks about wives as the weaker partner. And we see that in the 21st century. And maybe you cringe at that. What does he mean by that? It literally means the weaker partner. That in many ways, you've got women in a frailer uh, situation, weaker than the men that they are living with. Yes, there is domestic violence that takes place with women uh, against men. But primarily and most of the time it is men against women. Why? Because often they are the stronger one in the home and we cry out against this when we see it in the news or a football player or some other person where there is domestic violence in the home and God is not happy with it either. In fact, he says, if you're going to live that way in the home, it's going to hinder your prayers. Don't abuse your spouse at home and then come and expect that I hear your prayers. If you're going to live in such a way that is so against my word behind the closed doors of your home, don't come into the open doors of the church and expect that God is going to hear your prayers. So it can hinder our prayers and can hinder our hearing from God when we live in such a way that there's discord at home. Six, and finally, can hinder us hearing from God and can hinder uh, God hearing us is neglecting the poor. Neglecting the poor can hinder our prayers. A couple passages on this, one from Proverbs. Proverbs 21.13 says, If a man shuts his ears to the cry of the poor, he too will cry out and not be answered. Isaiah chapter 58, verses 6 through 7 uh, and, and the following ones, it says this, Is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen, this is the Lord speaking, to loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and break every yoke? Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter? When you see the naked, to clothe him and not turn away from your own flesh and blood? 
Then your light will break forth like the dawn and your healing will appear quickly appear. Then your righteousness will go before you and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then you will call and the Lord will answer. You will cry for help and he will say, here I am. Neglecting of the poor, neglecting to show God's love to the world around us, neglecting to extend the grace and the love and the forgiveness and the hospitality that as Christians we are called to extend can hinder our prayers from being heard. Any one of these six things. There are others, I'm sure, in the Scriptures, but these are six big ones that the Scriptures talk clearly about. And if you're in a place where you find yourself, I cannot hear from God, I'm not hearing from God. Could it be that there's one of these places in your life that is unattended to, one of these places in your life that is hindering you from hearing from God? Now I say all of this and you might say, well, I think I'm good on all of these and I'm still not hearing the voice of God. I would say this, you have everything you need from God for the direction you need in your life right now. You have everything you need from God for the direction you need in your life right now. You have the Bible as your guide and God's Word right there in written form before you. You have His Holy Spirit as a believer dwelling and living within you to illuminate that Word and to speak to you. You have the communion of saints, the church around you to consult with, and you also have the wisdom and knowledge that God has put within you. If you need something else, He will give it to you. But you have everything you need for follow God's guidance in your life. We look at the Scriptures Sometimes we fall down on these passages that we think, oh, I don't understand this one. We come to the witch of Endor and we say, I'm not sure what's going on here. I challenge you to follow and do your best to follow and seek the Lord on the passages you do understand. And that is enough to do for all of our lives. We have the direction God would have to give us. And if we need something else, if you need a specific word for that point in your life, God will provide it for you. You have everything you need to follow and receive God's direction in your life. So what is ungodly places of counsel and why would a person seeking godly wisdom go there? Certainly places like the occult or trying to speak to the dead, we understand. Those, might be, those are ungodly places to seek counsel. Went over that already. But also, when we run to authors, books, television programs, friends, family members, anybody who does not put Christ first in their life, we are likely to receive counsel that is not in line with the Lord. We will receive counsel that puts our happiness, our security, and the things of this world before worshiping God. If you go to someone who doesn't have Christ first in their life and is not living for Christ, and you ask them for guidance for your life, they are going to speak from what they know and how they live their life. They are going to tell you ways to preserve your happiness. They are not going to challenge you necessarily to die to yourself in order to live for Christ. They are going to, challenge, they are going to encourage you to live in ways that preserve your security. They are not going to challenge you to give and live sacrificially and rely upon God for provision. 
They are going to encourage you and to counsel you to live for yourself and not necessarily worry about your life offering worship to God. Godly counsel is grounded in God's word and has the goal of greater glory and worship of God. And so when you are seeking that, seek it in the place where God can be found. Seek it in his scriptures. Seek it in the, through the Holy Spirit. Seek it in the people that God has put in your life that follow and love the Lord. Fear about the future and a life lived that cuts us off from God's voice can cause people to seek godly wisdom in ungodly places. But resting in God and a life lived according to his word will always have everything you need to live for him. And let me conclude with this just before our music ministry returns. In the hopelessness of Saul, we can see the position that we would all be in apart from the work of Jesus. We are completely cut off from hearing and knowing God, but for the sacrifice of Jesus for us. And so if you're in this room this morning and you're saying, I've never heard from God, my first question is, have you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ? There's a fascination in this world to receive guidance from someone who's passed to the other side. Why not seek it from the only one who came back from death? Why not seek it from the only one who died and whose grave is empty because he rose from the dead? Paul puts it this way in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. If you are seeking wisdom for the future of your life, if you are looking for what goes on on the other side of that door of death, why not seek it from the one and the only one who's been there who came back to testify about it and who said that if you put your faith and trust in him, you have nothing to fear and nothing to be anxious about. Put your faith and trust in Jesus Put your faith and trust in Jesus and he will take care of your fears and anxieties. He will give you all the information you need to live in this life. And he will speak to you as you speak to him. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, I thank you, Lord, that even through the story and account of a man who fell so far away from you, who had so much given to him and yet chose to go his own direction. That even in a story from a man who goes to a witch and a medium for counsel that we can understand and see the truth of your word and we can even be pointed to your son, Jesus Christ. Father, I pray as we come to the conclusion of this message that you would help us to examine our hearts. Lord, if we had allowed fear and anxiety to be there, if there is an unhealthy fear or anxiety that is ruling our life, Lord, I encourage and I ask that you would help us, Lord. I ask that you would help us, Lord, to put our faith and trust in you. And if that's you here this morning, that I would ask you at the, before you leave here this morning, that you would 
put your faith and trust in God, would th- that you would ask Him to remove your fear and your anxiety, to remind you, to remind you of what we sang earlier, that He is greater, that He is greater, that He is greater, that you don't have to fear. I encourage you also this morning to examine your heart if there are any one of these six things in your heart and life that are keeping you from hearing God's voice that you'd make it right before you leave here this morning. You have unconfessed sin that you've allowed to live in your life. You've got unforgiveness that you haven't offered somebody, discord in your home, neglecting of the grace and mercy that to show the poor. Any one of these things, wrong motives, that you would not leave this room without getting right with your God, without making sure that 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 place in your life is clean and clear and that you have confessed it and repented, not just in words, but you have committed to live your life in accordance with who God is. Father, would you speak to us in this space? Lord, if there's anything like that in our heart, God, would you convict us of it and remind us of your grace and your love that's available to us that we may have taken 10,000 steps of way, but it is one step to turn around and walk into your presence. Father, we thank you for the hope that there is in Jesus Christ. Thank you that because of Jesus going through death, the grave, and the resurrection, that there does not need to be a fear of death. That death, where is thy sting? Grave, where is thy victory? It has been removed because of the victory of Jesus Christ on the cross. And we praise you for it in his name. Amen. Amen. Would you stand and we'll close out our service and worship this morning.